Hi, and welcome to Wild and Wook Podcast. We're your host. I'm Caroline. And I'm Susan. Come hang out with us as we talk true crime, hauntings, aliens, cryptids, and everything paranormal, weird, or unexplained. and I haven't had anything to eat yet and I was like oh god and then I also have an energy drink and I just knew I was going to be like I'm violently high and I've had an energy drink so I decided to have some popcorn (laughs) well it was popcorn or like do skillet chicken to make a gyro and I just didn't have the energy for that I haven't eaten anything either and I just I was like I should probably eat I think I'll get coffee. <laughs> like I'm nothing s- sounded good. I just didn't want anything to eat. These past few weeks, Rich and I have been so bad about like eating out. We're very good on Sundays. We like meal prep our meals just to make it hella easy. Not that they're healthy at all. They're just <laughs> easy. Like this week we did butter chicken and rice. But anyway, Sometimes I'll come home and I'll be like, so what do you want for dinner? And he's like, I mean, what we made. I was like, I know, but what do you want? What do you want? And the other day he was like, mm, Moe's sounds good. So we drove to Moe's. Anyway, so bad. It's been so much money. I, the, the reason that I cannot do the meal kit things like HelloFresh is that The person I am who decides what food I want when I order it and the person I am who receives the box. Yeah. Not the same person. No, never. And it sounds so good at the time because we used to do HelloFresh. And they're not, it's not like it's bad. It's just not what I want right now. Rich doesn't understand that because he could eat the same thing every day for four months. I need variety. I cannot deal with it. I cannot eat the same thing. The only thing that I could probably eat Every single day is either pizza or pasta. Oh, or tacos. I might be able to. But you can make anything into a taco. Yeah. To be fair, that's not necessarily even the same thing. (laughs) I think I could eat Mexican food, like burritos and tacos and nachos. Anything with jalapenos and sour cream. You can put, like, anything into all of those. Like, any type of food into those things. Yeah. Have you ever had a sushi burrito? Okay, (laughs) so we're about to uncover a fun fact about me. Giant food freaks me out. (laughs) How do I not know this about you yet? Because it's so random and weird. (laughs) I'm sorry, but I feel like that's a really big thing to know. (laughs) Like... Like people are like, oh, I love a Chipotle burrito. And I'm like, if the burrito is bigger than your head, it's too big. What about a foot long corn dog? I'm okay with that, weirdly. Okay. And I don't know why. <laughs> so Susan likes a foot long. I will absolutely take a foot long corn dog, but I'm not interested in a burrito bigger than my face. <laughs> okay. Well, now I'm going to be so distracted this whole episode racking my brain on giant foods. <laughs> 
to quiz you about. Do you remember? I don't remember how you long ago. The giant gummy bears. Kind of freaks me out. Not necessarily for the same reason. Mostly because I cannot imagine like the disgusting stickiness that would come like after you like gnaw the ear off of a giant gummy bear and then have to walk away because they weigh like five pounds. <laughs> like also then those, what happens? Also, those giant snakes look like dildos. Have you seen the giant gummy snakes? Just like a double-ended dildo. That's hysterical. (laughs) You need to look it up. I do not want to eat it, but it is funny. Do you remember the commercials, like, I don't know how long ago it was. I think it was Fuddruckers? They had these commercials, and, like, the whole thing was about they have big burgers, but in the commercials, they made the burgers freakishly big. And I was like, no. (laughs) Not only... I know that they're not that big. I don't want to go there anymore at all because now you freaked me out with your super giant burger. <laughs> oh my God. This is so strange and I love it. <laughs> On the other hand, like if it's a cinnamon roll and it's the size of a plate, I'm in. You can't have exceptions. Ma'am. You can have two. You can have two have exceptions. Have we met? I am like, I am a constant exception. <laughs> But the sushi burritos freak me out. And I don't, I I don't, I don't know. I just can't. It just freaks me out. What is your favorite type of burrito? What's, what are, what's your like, what's your burrito? Um, it's probably the California burrito from the place on the street. So it has steak and... It has French fries in it. That's cool. I've seen that. Um, it has steak. It has sour cream. It has French fries. What else does it have in it? I think it has green chili something. Mm-hmm. Does not have rice in it. I do not enjoy rice in my burritos. I don't enjoy beans. Well, I just don't enjoy beans, period. But in my burrito, no thank you. I will eat a bean burrito like nobody's business. Love it. Gross. I do eat the burrito supreme from Taco Bell, but I don't think those are real beans or real meat. I'm pretty sure nothing in anything at Taco Bell is real. That's why it's so good. I'll still eat it, but I'm pretty sure it's not real. Also, PSA to anyone who has not tried the chicken taco things from Taco Bell. My husband and I tried them and he enjoyed them, but this is what they were to me. A flattened Chick-fil-A biscuit, like with the sticky sweet stuff on the outside, like their chicken minis, with a Tyson oven chicken strip in the middle, like the breading was falling off of the chicken because it was like a frozen chicken, with some kind of, I think it was the cheesy gordita sauce, like that spicy ranch sauce, and then two jalapenos. So... (laughs) a pass on that what I think you just said you're lying (laughs) get no get him in here we need we need we need the second let me see if he was talking to me if he was talking on his headphones hold on okay he was talking on his headphones he's like I'm not even listening to you yeah (laughs) I walked in his room he's like what do you want 
<laughs> I just feel like when Taco Bell's like, let's get it on a trend, then they just make it into something ridiculous. Bring back the Mexican pizza. It's oh not a joke God. anymore. It's, it's not, not fun. <laughs> I saw, I did see a video the other day that somebody was like, Taco Bell's marketing campaign. Oh, people love this? Trash. <laughs> like, why are they like that? And I discovered that they do not at all have my Fiesta, um, Fiesta taco salad anymore. What was in that? It was, was it just potatoes. A, no, it was just, but it had like the, like the fried crunchy oh. shell bowl thing. God, I love those things. Oh my God. I could just eat those. Yeah, absolutely. And it's totally like completely gone off their menu now. Do you have a Moe's burritos? Like a Moe's Southwestern? No, I don't think I have it here. I've had Moe's and it was fine. Yeah, it's like a chain burrito place. It's our favorite chain burrito place just because they have more toppings than Chipotle. Like at Chipotle, I get bowls. Moe's, I get burritos. But they have a taco salad bowl that's like the Taco Bell one. Mm, yeah, I would, I would definitely eat that. I don't really go, like, we have Taco Bueno and Taco Bell. I nine times out of 10, if I'm going to do fast food Mexican, like, cause you know, fast food Mexican is a category, mm-hmm. not to say that you, that driving through a taqueria isn't just as fast as fast food Mexican, but it's completely different types of food. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So taco bueno would be like my fast food Mexican choice, but nine times out of 10. Also, if I'm going to get a burrito, I'm probably going to go to a taqueria. Well, what is it like to be in Texas where there's probably one on every road? <laughs> we so, do not have that here. It's like we have burrito freedoms, but not reproductive freedoms. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and on that note, we're going to start the episode. <laughs> that's, how we're, that's how they're going to keep women in Texas. That's how they're going to prevent all of the women from leaving Texas. It's the taquerias. <laughs> They're going to be like, ah, tacos. Oh, God, reproductive rights. Uh, which do I choose? What do I do? Do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? I think I want you to go first. Okay. Because my topic is a rabbit hole and, and still kind of a developing situation. Yeah, I'm super excited to hear about it, though, because I did not read that Google document. I actually have it so I can reference it, and we'll get there. Let's talk, let's talk about you first. Okay, so I am talking about an old case from 1910, which, you you know, I normally don't like to do, but this one kind of caught my attention. I was surprised. I was like, I don't recognize that name. And then I looked, I was like, oh, oh, we're going, we're going back. It's just because when I was reading about the case, I was like, yeah, this is cool. It's a murder. It's, you know, 1910 is cool. But then what's happening today with the case kind of is what made me want to talk about it. Awesome. So let's hear about it. Okay. So Dr. Harley, not Holly, whoo, Dr. Holly Harvey Crippen was born September 7th, nope, September 11th, 1862 in Coldwater, Michigan. He studied first at the University of Michigan in homeopathic medicine, graduated from the Cleveland Homeopathic Medical College in 1884. 
So when he was 21, a year before his college graduation, he traveled to England because he wanted to improve his medical knowledge. It's there he obtained a diploma, which was endorsed by the faculty of the Medical College of Philadelphia, where he worked for a short time. And in 1885, he acquired another diploma as an eye and ear specialist from the ophthalmological ophthalmological hospital in New York. So he's got quite a history in the medical field, even though it is homeopathic, which at this time was kind of like, I guess it was a thing. I was about to ask, like, how was that? Do we know how that, I mean, I know someone knows, but like, do either of us know how that, was that viewed as medicine or was it viewed as hocus pocus? I don't know. That's a good question. I didn't really look into that. I do know It would almost be a hard thing to even look into because it's just like, how did people feel about it at the time? Yeah, I do know that it was probably just a bunch of like cocaine and sugar water. I mean, you know. There's some cocaine. There's something to be said for the early 1900s when it was like, oh, you're not feeling well? How about some liquid heroin? (laughs) You have a headache? Here. Take a swig of this. You'll be better. You just need some <laughs> caffeine. Here's some Coke with some cocaine in it. Right, exactly. <laughs> like, oh, you you need a little pick-me-up? How about some uh, soda with cocaine? <laughs> uh, I, so I really don't know what their view on it was. I do know that he was able to start his own company with a partner doing mail-order, like, medicines, homeopathic okay. medicines. So it, it, it was probably successful. So once he returned to England, returned to the USA from England, he met his first wife, Charlotte Bell. She worked as a nurse. She actually died of a plexi while pregnant with their second child in 1892. Crippen decided that the 17-month-old that they had, he could not care for on his own. So he sent, he sent the child off. And I don't know. I read... Con- contradicting ideas that it was his parents or her parents but either way they were in California and his son's name was Otto and reportedly he never saw him again which I guess in 1910 it's not like the dads aren't trying to get custody it was yeah it's hard to even it's hard to even identify with what the thought process was at the time about men raising babies. I mean, probably it was fully expected that he wouldn't just like keep the child and raise it. Unless, I mean, this is a time, this is not at least not far off from the time period that like, if your wife died, you would just marry her sister. Yeah. I had never heard that before. That is a thing that it was, it was kind of a common thing that people did. And it seems so weird from our perspective but from a practical perspective you know you have somebody to help you take care of kids and help you with all of all of the very important things that women did in households okay so in 1892 he married his second wife Cora Turner who at the time was only 19 and an aspiring actress and keep in mind at this time they're in New York New York City her Mm -hmm. real name I'm going to butcher this. And every podcast I listened to about this butchered it too. <laughs> Kuni Gundy 
Makamatoksky. That's so butchered, guys. I'm so sorry. Her father was Russian-Polish and her mother was German, but she had lived in New York City her whole life and went by the stage name Belle Elmore. That's a fucking so name. So she has a real name, mm-hmm. an American name, and a stage name? Yes. This woman's like one step from running a solid scam. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Dr. Munyon's pharmaceutical company is the company that he kind of created with a partner. Um, and this was in 1894. So Cora had aspirations to me- be a music hall artist. But according to many, many reports, she had absolutely no talent. And all she managed to get out of her career was... <laughs> Real every article I read about this case was like she had zero talent. She wanted to be a star in musicals, but she sucked. So <laughs> but she did manage to get a career of sorts. She had show business friends and she ended up being at the time of her death the treasurer of the Music Hall Ladies Guild in London. So she had some success out of it. So before they decided to eventually move to England, where the crime actually happened in 1897, they did travel to St. Louis, Philadelphia, and Canada for work at the pharmaceutical company. So I want to kind of talk about their relationship because a lot of sources say that it was a very odd relationship and they don't really understand how it worked because there was an 11-year age difference. The doctor was older than Cora. The doctor was mild-mannered, meticulous. He was a smaller-billed man, while Cora was very dominant, overbearing, and controlled basically every aspect of his life, as well as her open affairs that she was having. I feel like people being confused about this relationship is just, like, (laughs) passive (laughs) kink-shaming. Oh, my God. So good. It seems pretty clear to me, like, he was into it. Like, what's the problem? What is that called? A cuck? Mm, It could be, yeah. If he knew about the affairs. Or no, there's another one where they're, like, a money dominant. There's a financial key. I don't know. I mean, it could be a a whole lot of things. But, I mean, it sounded like, it sounds to me like he was like, she's. She's dominant in every way, and I'm into it. <laughs> yeah. So he was described at his trial as kindly, gentle, and well-mannered. Cora was described as vivacious, pleasant, with a fond love of dress and display. She had a Brooklyn accent and dark hair that she dyed auburn. And I just feel like they make him out to be this, like, kind, small soul who could never do wrong. And she's like, she was a woman who had a Brooklyn accent and she was wild. I want to hang out with her. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not the open affairs, but yeah, she sounds pretty fun. I mean, honestly, like that's her business and I, whatever, I'm not, I'm not getting involved in that nonsense, but like, she's like, she's a She wants to be a music hall star, even though she has no talent, which there's a special kind of like, fuck you, I'm going to do what I want for somebody who's like, yeah, I know I don't have any talent, but whatever, I want to do it anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
with a Brooklyn accent and three names and dyed red hair. Like, yes, ma'am, you sound like fun. So Crippen worked off and on for the Munion Company, as well as he had a partnership with partnership, a partnership with the Yale Tooth Specialist, where he hired a young typist named Ethel Lavive. Lanive. She was actually 20 years younger than the doctor. He had first met her when they were working for one of Crippen's business failures in England called the Drought Institute, which was in 1900. This is after they moved to England. So the two began having an affair by 1905. In the same time, Crippen and Cora decided to move to a much larger house than they actually needed or could afford, according to records. And this address is kind of infamous now in England because this was a pretty famous case. Infamous? Is that right? If it's famous, it's not infamous, right? No, infamous is right. That means being famous for something negative. Mm-hmm. So this house is 39 Hill, Hill Drop Crescent. So part of the thinking behind this move was that the pair could now have separate bedrooms. Um, according to sources, Cora had never really been a sexual person, or at least this is what Crippen said in his trial, and all physical relations ceased between them in 1907. But because the house, go ahead. I thought she had a bunch of affairs. Right, 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 right. But I'm, he said, I'm a little confused about what the affairs were now. I mean, maybe, maybe she was, maybe it was like just a, like a financial domination thing where she just. Maybe. Again, we're not kink shaming, whatever. No, but this is according to Crippen. Right. Like he said she wasn't a sexual person and the the relations had stopped between them. So because the house was much more expensive than they can afford, because Crippen was not able to work as a doctor in England because his creditations didn't roll over. So he just kind of had these odd jobs. But mainly his job was to support Cora and her failing aspirations. So that was his job that he was not getting paid for. Although she was bringing in income as the treasurer of this music hall. Because the house was so much more expensive, it was Cora's idea to bring in lodgers to help pay the mortgage, which, you know, she was in charge of and Crippen thought it was a great idea. But then Cora was having sex with the lodgers openly, as in Crippen knew about it. So <laughs> I just, we're not kink shaming. I feel like a lot of this is like there was a lot of consensual things happening that people weren't comfortable talking about. Yeah. But because of these affairs in 1908, Crippen became public with his mistress, uh, Ethel, and said that they had fallen in love. So it's believed that Cora and Crippen's relationship really started to unravel at the end of 1909 in December. Cora had threatened to leave Crippen, was also planning on taking their joint savings with her. In December of 1909, Miss Crippen gave notice to withdraw from their bank. And then exactly a month later, in January of 1910, Crippen ordered five grains of, I don't know how to, a hyacin, as I think how you say this poison. Um, and it's nowadays known in the UK as taken to prevent travel sickness but back then it was just a poison and he ordered five (laughs) we use it now for motion sickness but at the time it was just poison so the shop he bought it from was Lewis and Burroughs shop which 
is not really important. But basically, at the trial, they came forward and said this was an extremely large order. They had to place a special order with wholesalers to get this done. So they remembered it specifically because, like, who asked for this much poison? Sorry, that's a lot of poison. (laughs) Sir, I feel like there's ill intent, but I'm still going to order it for you. Wait, were they like? Is that the right number? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so a lot he, of poison. Should we ask questions? Nah, just order it. If there's a trial, we'll we'll tell them it was weird. <laughs> my theory is he was a, a regular customer there, and my theory is he, they knew him as such like a mild mannered, mm. chill dude. Like they're like, oh well, maybe he just wants to have some as backup, like on stock, just so he doesn't have to order as much. Is he the originator of buying in bulk? Maybe so. <laughs> Um, wait, so it was used as poison for what? Or do I know I asked the wrong questions. Let me just type this into Google really quick. I'm just curious, like what, like, what did they think he was using it for that they were like, "Eh, you know, it was weird, but whatever. (laughs) Cause I mean, just like arsenic is used as rat poison. So if somebody orders arsenic and they go yeah we got a we have a real rodent problem everybody kind of goes maybe weird but what are you gonna do I'm just wondering if it's kind of the same thing you know I will tell you I don't know but I kind of wonder if maybe it wasn't a poison and it was still a medicine then and he just overdosed her potentially but the articles that I read said poison I mean, the difference between medicine and poison is definitely dosage, like, most of the time. Yeah. Um, So, who knows? But he still ordered an awful lot. And they were like, "Mm, this is sus, but my brother got to make money. It's going to be a, we have to special order that amount of poison. Oh, well. Yeah. So, that was in January of 1910. So, on the evening of... January 31st, 1910, the Crippens threw a dinner party for two close friends of Belle's that she knew from the music hall. And these were couples. couple. Cora. Belle is Cora. Yeah, sorry. Okay. Let me. I've said Cora the whole time, so I'll just keep saying Cora. No, I got you. I just wanted to make sure that because there's at least one other woman involved, I just wanted to make sure I was still tracking. Yeah. So this other couple was Paul and Clara Marinetti. So Paul was a retired music hall performer, and Clara and Cora immediately hit it off when she moved to England. They became very close friends. Paul asked to use the toilet, and because Crippen did not escort him upstairs to show him where it was, Cora berated him at the table in front of guests. And this is from Paul and Clara's telling of the trial. Although this was a super embarrassing event, they said that they stayed, enjoyed themselves, had time, played games, and did not not leave till 1.30 on February 1st. They're like, that's really weird, but we're not going to kink shape. The number of things in this situation that people are like, yeah, that was weird, but, you know, we just went with it. Well, it's also 1910. I feel like people weren't really stepping out of their... They weren't like, oh, this is strange. They were just like, it was oh. really weird that they were just openly fighting. But, you know, we just figured it would be rude to leave. So we stayed until 1.30 in the morning. So it started to get weirder from that point. Crippen immediately started to pawn all of Cora's jewelry. 
On February 3rd, two letters that were signed Bell Elmore, which was Cora's stage name, they were dated for February 2nd, and they were received by the secretary at the music hall where she worked, basically saying that Cora was resigning from her position as honorary treasurer as she had been summoned to the United States as one of her relatives had taken seriously ill. While this is happening, Crippen is pawning more of her stuff. He took Ethel as a date to the music hall ball, which is like that's when people started. That's when people started to notice. I'm pretty sure this was like a month after his wife had gone to the USA. Allegedly, <clears throat> that um, is bold. It is very bold, but at the same time, people in the community or people that were they surrounded them knew how odd their marriage was, knew of her affairs. He had come public with his relationship with Ethel in 1908, remember? True. I guess maybe it would have been weirder if he hadn't gone? People still thought it was weird. Um, Mm -hmm. Because on March 12th, Ethel actually moved permanently in with him at 39 Hilldrop Crescent. Just before Easter of 1910, Crippen told... Cora's close friends, the Martinettis, that she had taken seriously ill in the USA and she was not expected to live. What? I just want to time travel some of these people that committed these crimes in in, in times when you could be like, yeah, she uh, went to the States and there's no way to check. I just told Rich, I was like, I told him about this case that I was writing up on and how it was 1910, and basically you went to court, and they were like, Sir, we noticed that you breathed on the madam. You are guilty. <laughs> but but also, like, you could just disappear people by being like, Oh, yeah, they got on a ship. Wow. A month ago, not sure. What happened? happened? Hadn't He's- talked to him, And then it's like, oh, finally heard from this person. They're, they're really sick. They're probably going to die. And yeah. and pretty much everybody had to just go, okay. Mm-hmm. On Good Friday in 1910, a letter arrived for the Marinettis, and it said, Bell died yesterday at 6 p.m. It was sent from London's Victoria Rail Station. He, Crippen, if he committed this, thought nobody's going to check up on this. Nobody's going to go from England to the United States. But the Marinettis, they cared. They were very good friends to Cora, and so... The Marinetti husband, I believe his name was Paul. No, yes, yes. It was actually not the Marinettis, though. It was a music artist called Little Hawthorne. Lil, L-I-L, Lil Hawthorne in 1910. It was a woman. She was like a, a singer. So is it Lil, like her name is Lil short for Lillian? Or is I, it Lil like like short for Little? Because either way, cute. I, I have no idea. I want to say Lil is her name. But they, her and her husband, Mr. Nash, actually made a visit to the United States. And while they were there, they made inquiries into Cora. When they returned to London, he spoke to Crippen, kind of said, hey, we went over there. Nobody had anything to say about Cora. Nobody knew she was here. He did not get answers he wanted from Mr. Crippen, Dr. Crippen. So he went to Scotland Yard and the it kind of escalated from there. Scotland Yard came to talk to him, and they didn't really question him too hard. They were just like, hey, 
Mr. Nash said this, and um, Cora's not here, and we have no record of her dying. Because, you know, back then they didn't keep record like they do today at all. Not no, even I mean, birth certificate. Yeah, there was not. Like I said, it's just so it was so easy for somebody to disappear, either voluntarily or not. Yeah. <clears throat> so then Dr. Crippen told a different story to Scotland Yard and said that, that <laughs> right, said that Cora and him decided they didn't want the public to know as not to embarrass her. But she had run away to Chicago with Bruce Miller, who was a friend from her earlier days in the New York City music halls. Yeah. So Dew, who was the investigator from Scotland Yard, Scotland Yard said, well, that seems very sus. So he got a search warrant. And the first time they went in, they found nothing because Dr. Crippen was there. And I don't think he let them in too much into the house. But the very next day after that first search warrant was executed, thank you. Crippen shaved his mustache, and it was very distinctive. I don't know if I told you. He had, like, one of those. What are those called? It's, like, a special name for that mustache. Like a handlebar mustache? Yeah, I think so, but it was really thick. So he shaved that. Disguised Ethel as a boy. Bought tickets for a passage to Canada. Traveled as father and son. It just gets wilder, I'm telling you. If there was a handbook for how to look super suspicious, that's got to be in there. Two things happened while they were on this boat. The first is that Scotland Yard came back to issue another search warrant while he was not there, or they found he was not there, and that's when they learned he bought passage to Canada. They were going through the cellar, and they noticed loose bricks in the floor, so the officers did a thorough search, and beneath the bricks, they found remains of a body. The body was headless, limbless, and boneless. I'm sorry, when I hear boneless, I just can't help but think about chicken. Wait, it was just a, like a, like, fat, fatty tissue torso that they found. I'm sorry. Hold on. Can the amount of work that would go in, I mean, never mind, removing, removing appendages in general is quite, but boneless? <laughs> boneless. I that can't isn't say that seriously. Special level of what the fuck? Yeah. There's a lot of questions with the way that the body was found and just the body, this is in quotation marks because it's not really a body at this point, Has was found. But basically, the body had been covered in lime. There are many questions. Mm-hmm. And wrapped in a pajama top. So at this point, with body found, they're like, we need to stop this boat somehow or we need to inform Canada so they can stop Crippen and we can get him. But while they were aboard the boat, the captain, his name was Henry Kendall, he was like, this seems, this seems odd. These, this father and son, they're holding hands a lot. They're kissing a lot. They're just 
touching not like father and son touch. So he actually, and this is the first case where a telegraph was used to catch a killer. Like that's Ooh, what that's this case very is. Very So he messaged his suspicions about this father and son on his ship to the Scotland Yard. Dew and his team boarded a ship and they intercepted the couple in Montreal, Canada. Wow. I know. That's so cool. Like, that's what this case is known for. It's very cool. This captain, like, saved the day because he was like, I don't think y'all are supposed to kiss like that. Never mind the fact that, so I'm sorry, what was the point of disguising your mistress as a boy if you were then going to make out, and calling her your son, if you were then going to, like, hang out in public and kiss her? (laughs) Who knows? It seems like it would have just been easier to just get on the boat. This is just, I, like you're doing too like you're you're just doing too much. Like you could have just gotten on the boat. They already figured out you bought the tickets. Obviously, anyway, go ahead. Sorry. So they intercept him. They intercept him. He's arrested on July 31st in 1910. Upon the arrest, according to Dew, Crippen said, "I'm not sorry. The anxiety has been too much." Oh, he's not sorry. He got caught. Right. Okay. Right. So okay. I'm going to talk about the trial. But I'm going to go ahead and tell you that there is a long-removed, like, third cousin relative in Michigan. His name is J.P. Crippen. He is doing absolutely everything he can, and he has since, like, I think 2010 to clear Crippen's name of this murder. Does he know about the boneless thing? He knows about the boneless thing. And I'm going to talk about the boneless thing. Okay. (laughs) But he wants to clear Crippen's name in England and bring him over to bury him in his family's burial plot in Michigan. And my first thought when I read this was like, wow, that's so cool. This guy got really into ancestry and found this information out and wanted to make some money off of it. This is a very popular case in England. We don't really know about it over here, but this was like mainstream front page news and people in England still know about it. Kind of like Jack the Ripper, but I can see why there's there's a lot happening. So it's believed by a lot of people that this long removed relative is just trying to get famous off of this. Ethel and Dr. Crippen were tried separately. Crippen's trial started on October 18th, 1910, and it lasted five days. And like I said, it was super sensationalized. It made front page news. People were like lining up to be able to get in the courtroom to watch this happen. So Dr. Crippen pleaded not guilty. The defense argued the body was not Cora's, but had been there long before Cora and Dr. Crippen moved to Hilldrop. The pajama top the torso was wrapped in was actually from a company called Jones Brothers. Prosecution was able to prove that the pajama top style and tag had not been used until 1908. The prosecution also argued that Dr. Crippen had purchased a large amount of poison and that no one had seen Cora since their dinner party that ended on February 1st. Some pretty solid circumstantial evidence. Seems pretty solid, yeah. So two days after the trial started, Dr. Pepper took the stand. (laughs) Dr. Pepper. He stated that the mark on a piece of skin that was actually shown in court was caused by an abdominal operation. Cora had actually had that same exact scar in the same exact spot on her torso from an abdominal operation. 
Again, they, pretty they solid said, circumstantial evidence. Pretty solid, yeah. The remains were those of an adult, young or middle-aged. There was no certain anatomical indication of the body sex because it was just like a flobbly torso. So with the re- when the remains had been examined, they'd been buried for about four to eight months is what they said. Okay. So, it, it, the timeline adds up. Evidence presented by the prosecution is what took up a majority of the time during this trial. They concerned their analysis of the organs and other material found. So the prosecution had a lot of information on Dr. Crippen that made him look hella, hella guilty. The jury only, yeah, the jury jury only took 27 minutes to find him guilty, and they sentenced him to death by hanging. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. They were like, "Mm mm-mm, No. Yeah, not even I mean, dealing with it. If you think about it, this information they presented, especially at this time, was big. I guess my only my only question would be, aside from the poison, which you can prove he ordered, but you can't prove he used, how do you know it was him? It was his wife. It was his house. Right, but I he also know. has a mistress. Right. Well, she went to trial, too. Okay. That makes more sense. She went to trial, too, uh, but it took four days for a jury to find her innocent. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Or not guilty. Um, So on November 23rd, 1910, Crippen was hanged in in London. Before his execution, he requested that. They were not. They were not fucking around and they were not wasting time. They were like, nope, you're guilty. We're going to hang you. It was, this like year. Pub, it was like a public thing. Yeah. So James Patrick Crippen, J.P. Crippen from Ohio, is the one, the cousin three times removed, that is trying to bring all this up again to clear Dr. Crippen's name. He has a, I don't know what this guy's actual qualifications are, but this this man named Mr. Tress. Tress Trail. This is a quote from him. A poisoner wants the death to appear natural so he can get a death certificate. This is the only case I know of where the victim was dismembered. It just doesn't make sense. But also, were they really... Is it the only case where somebody poisoned someone and dismembered them? I feel like it's probably not. I feel like it's not either. And also, at this point in time, I don't know how it was in England. Really, I don't know how it was in the United States. They were probably not issuing death certificates regularly. I don't I don't know about that. But, like, d- look, a poisoner wants their victim dead. They're not terribly concerned, I would think. With And also, he was planning on going to Canada. Mm-hmm. Well... Maybe he wasn't planning on going until they started asking questions. Yeah, maybe. But either way, I mean, it seems to me like, no, a murderer wants their victim dead. Mm -hmm. To say, well, because of the way they murdered, because of the way that they think he murdered his victim, it wouldn't make sense for her body to have been disposed of that way. Yeah. I mean, there's a... what What if things got rough? In the process. Like, there's a million reasons that somebody Mm -hmm. who was murdering someone might, like, maybe the plan was to just be like, oh, my God, I don't know what happened. She died. Professor David Foran, 
who was brought in by Mr. Trustrail. He was a director of forensic science. He is the director of forensic science at Michigan State University. He led a DNA analysis of the scarred piece of corpse used in the trial. So he followed two lines of research. First, he isolated mitochondrial DNA, which remains unchanged throughout generations down a female line. Mm-hmm. A genealogist found grand nieces of Cora Crippen who have the same mitochondrial DNA as her, and repeated tests found that they were not related to the body in the basement. After they found out this information, he used a new technique to examine nuclear DNA and discovered a Y chromosome. So not only was Cora's Cora's body that mm-hmm. was in the basement not hers, it was not even a woman. It was a man. What if she wasn't biologically female? Yeah. Because then the mitochondrial DNA wouldn't match, even if they were relatives, because that's only passed through females. So what if she wasn't born female? We, I don't think, could ever know that information unless, because her body. Or even if she was, like, intersexed. Yeah. I mean, I would think the people, well, I guess the people who had these affairs with her are not going to come out and be like, yeah, I, you know, this is what she's, yeah, so we don't know. Who knows? Very good point, Susan. (laughs) Very, maybe that's why their relationship was so, maybe he found out this information after they had gotten married or he knew maybe they maybe maybe he was into it but at the same i mean there's a lot like i said i feel like there's a whole lot of things going on in this relationship that were like consensual yet not things that people talked about at the time so you just had to like and that could i mean intersex people have always existed Mm -hmm. but it was definite i mean it's still something that a lot of people do not talk about yeah So it's definitely something that could have been the case, but just not been talked about. What a good point. Um, So Cora's body was not that of a woman. John Boyne, who wrote a book on Crippen, it's called A Novel of Murder. He, this is a quote from him. I think Crippen probably did kill his wife. His suggestion His actions suggest guilt, his decision to flee the country and dress Ethel as his son, rather than allow her to reveal her true identity on the ship as his lover. Cora made his life so miserable that I think he finally cracked. I do see where he's coming from. I see his point. There's also the other theory that he was innocent and he knew he was going to be found guilty because it's 1910 and evidence is not really a thing. So he fled. Okay, but if he was innocent, then he wouldn't have known there was a body in his basement. He didn't. Until, I mean, supposedly, we never know. But what was he, he fleeing from if he didn't know there was a body in his basement? His wife missing and missing. nobody being able to find her. Maybe. I mean, there are- there's definitely some suspicious shit in, the, in that he's saying that, you know, oh, she... She went to the United States and then she died. Oh, that's not really true. She actually ran off with somebody and we didn't want to say it publicly. I mean, there's a lot of weird shit happening. Yeah. Well, now J.P. Crippen, and I don't know how he has this information or this information has proven truthful, says that Cora did come over. There's record in LSI 
Ellis Island. There's I mean, so- Ellis Island records are pretty are are pretty solid. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just curious, like what made him, how, what made him so sure that it was her, as opposed to somebody else. I mean, a name she would have used. Because if it's part of her, the name that you couldn't pronounce that I'm not even about to attempt. Mm-hmm. If it's like some version of that name, I could see how that would be pretty distinctive. But on the other hand, she was born in America. Why would she have to go through Ellis Island? She could have disguised herself as some, like, used part of her name. This is a direct quote from J.P. Crippen. He says, Cora came back to the USA, entered through Ellis Island, and was living with a relative in the New York area until the 1920 census. So I guess she did come in on her name. But again, if she is a U.S. resident, like you said, she shouldn't have to come in. I guess she could have gone through Ellis Island, though, because that's still a port. So she might have still gone through Ellis Island, even though she wasn't an immigrant. That's interesting, though, until up until the 1920 census, she was in New York. That is interesting. And it's interesting he says she was living with a relative because it seems like that would have been something that they could have easily confirmed at the time. Yeah. The final conclusion of this case, or at least in until 2020, which is the last article I read. J.P. Crippen failed to get the case reopened. The Criminal Cases Review Commission declined to refer it to the Court of Appeal because he is too distant a relative to have sufficient interest. So that is the case of Dr. Crippen, and he is called the Doctor of Death. I am going to go with my theory, which is that she wasn't biologically female. I like that theory. that's why the DNA doesn't match. I like it, but then what? How do you explain the census thing? I would need more information on that. I mean, that's just—he's literally just saying she lived with a relative and she came in through Ellis Island. Like, where's the? I mean, yeah. And that's not even already. She has three different names. One's a stage name. One's a birth name. The name he's saying she came in through. I don't even know. Like, is it a legal name? Is it a, Yeah. is it just an assumed name? Who was the relative? Like, it just seems like that would have been so easy to confirm at the time. Supposedly. Because they were looking for her. Supposedly they came out with all this information on a TV show, but I do not know the name of it. Yeah. That's it. I mean, that's a really interesting, there's a lot going on there for sure. And it's a really interesting case. Thank you so much for the continued support. Please find and follow us at Pod on Instagram and Twitter. If you're looking for bonus content, early episode releases, and free merch, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash wildandmookpodcast. If you have any weird or creepy stories, we want to share them, so please email us at wildandmookpodcast at gmail.com. And remember, all stories start somewhere. Be wild, stay woke, and question everything.